And so one of the beautiful things about how Jesus cares for people is that he he creates this space that holds people in like this courageous care where they can tune into what's really going on and share that with him. That was Matt Tebby, and this is the Things Above Podcast. So my guests today on the Things Above podcast are Matt Tebby and Ben Sternke. They are the co-founders of Gravity Leadership, an organization focused on transformational leadership and discipleship. They provide coaching, consulting, and workshops for pastors and ministry leaders. They're also co-pastors of a church in Indianapolis called The Table and co-hosts of the Gravity Leadership podcast. Matt and Ben, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Jim, great to be with you. Oh man, guys, uh, your book is fantastic and I can't wait to talk about it. I saw it in Christianity Today, hmm. and the, just the ad, and I went, just the, the title alone hmm. just grabbed me. I thought, oh man, okay, this is great because this podcast is really about setting our minds on things above or having the mind of Christ. And I say often on the podcast that our goal is to have the mind of Jesus, to, to see God, ourselves, the world from his perspective, uh, his mindset. Yeah. And so I got your book and then it was InterVarsity Press, which is great because that's my publisher mm-hmm. and they're very involved in the Apprentice Institute and the work we do. So that was great. It's a Fermatio book and everything was just fantastic. And then I thought, okay, is the book going to be good though? Yeah. <laughs> is it going to be any good? And it's really good. Like it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, every chapter, every point that you make. So if I keep talking, it'll be the, the praise will be so effusive, listeners will stop and they'll think he's just lost his mind. So, Thank you. Um, so here's the first question I ask every author who's on the podcast. Why did you write this book? Ben, why'd you write it? Then I'll, then I'll chime in. <laughs> uh, Matt, Matt told me I had to, so I don't know. <laughs> there you go. All joking aside, um, I, I think we, we wrote it out of our, a couple things, out of our experience as you read in our bio, we're, we're pastors. We've been pastors for a long time. And right now we pastor together along with another co-pastor. It kind of came out of our experience of, of discipling people, of trying to help people into the life that God shares with us. Also the coaching work that we do through Gravity, just realizing like we didn't always articulate these um, sort of the axioms in the book in the way that we do now in our training. And I think a lot of our learning over the years has come from learning that we were operating with different assumptions or that we had had certain paradigm shifts that um, we needed to learn how to articulate for people so that it could give them access to a different way of inhabiting the world that was through, you know, through a different lens, uh, because we found it just affected everything about discipleship is we, we can engage in the same spiritual practices, but if we're engaging in those practices from, dif- from a different set of lenses, from different paradigms, they they do very different work in our lives. And so, you know, I mean, as Jesus said, you know, often in the Gospels, you can fast and you can pray, but it can actually bear no fruit in your life. It can actually bear negative fruit. Um, yes. If, 
if the paradigm, if the way that you're, if your imagination about what you're doing isn't aligned with the way that kind of God is working in the world, um, it can just affect everything about um, the quality of our discipleship. And so that's kind of one, uh, one reason that we wrote the book is just to articulate to a wider audience um, some of what we were learning was really helpful to be articulated for those that we were discipling and those that we were um, coaching. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. And I totally agree because it's been my experience also that, that people can practice the spiritual disciplines and, and actually get worse. Yes. If, if their narratives yes. are bad about who God is and who they are, yes. they actually can contribute to uh, a deformed uh, uh, understanding of the Christian life. Yes, and I, I certainly experienced that myself. So, yeah. um, Matt, go ahead. You're, you're up next. Yeah, I think two main reasons, I think, in addition to what Ben said, which is all true. One is there aren't many books out there that talk about what this book talks about. And uh, it felt like we often we often have these experiences of talking past other people, or we say something and people hear another, or, man, this is really important to you and it's not important to me. And I think that Ben and I are just really curious by nature. And we're constantly trying to figure out what's the disconnect here? What's how are we missing? What's the misalignment here? Or um, what kinds of things surprise or shock or offend us when we uh, look at the life of Jesus and then look at the life of Jesus with people who think differently and access the reality differently? They have different paradigms than we do. And so I think wanting to put out a book that was unique and also could begin to name some of what causes that disconnect. Um, rather than <clears throat> somebody's just, you know, uh, stupid or doesn't care about Jesus as much as I do. No, we can actually talk on the level of assumptions and paradigms, lenses, if you will, mm-hmm. that that give us access to different realities that then change what we can see or how we see the same kinds of data or, or realities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Dallas Willard said so many times, I heard him say, you know, we live at the mercy of our ideas. and mm-hmm. They can, they run our lives, they can ruin our lives. Uh, and, and that's so crucial is, and, and we don't often have a place to examine our ideas. Like, where did that come from? And what your book does so well is it's dealing with really big subjects like epistemology, which is how we know what we know. Uh, it deals with deconstruction. It deals with reconstruction. Um, but what I love about the book is that you're doing really hard work but you're, you're, you're helping the reader not have to do all that work just by, by virtue of, of stating the, them in the, in the form of axioms and then showing how they're biblically accurate and how profound they are. So you do that really well. Uh, you, I mean, I, I loved hearing your own stories. You guys are pretty vulnerable in the book. Was that hard to, to be, I mean, you're really honest in several places of, yeah. of your own faith journey and some disappointments and hurts and, yeah. experiences with bad leadership. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I find vulnerability hard in general, maybe, maybe harder than Matt does. That's <laughs> just a personality <laughs> thing, but, um, okay, let's have Matt, con- let's just have Matt confess his sins right now. Here we go. <laughs> uh, from he just loves, this morning. How he long is this podcast? <laughs> yeah. He loves that idea. He, he wants to do that. Um, I'm more reticent to do that. Um, and so, but yeah, so I would say the vulnerability for me anyway, is a spiritual discipline of sorts. Um, in that I know, I know that, uh, it does, it helps people. Um, it does good work for me, uh, to kind of open myself up to, you know, to people in that way. Um, you know, also 
<laughs> to strangers through writing um, in appropriate ways. And so, so yeah, I, I find it difficult. Um, I also find it uh, helpful for my own hmm. growth um, because I found it is helpful for other people to hear those things from me. Yeah. And I, I guess I would add to that. I think the more we, Jim, you know, in the book, we make a big deal about love and, mm-hmm. and reclaiming love as the, you know, the, the orienting center of the Christian life. And I feel like I'm still in elementary school when it comes to what love is and how love works. But something I'm realizing more and more coming to uh, accept more and more is that love is being open to change. Love is being permeable and mm. willing. So, so James talks about the wisdom that's from above is, is willing to yield. And I think that in love, vulnerability is a necessity. And of course, there's misuses of vulnerability, especially for people with power, um, people who have platforms or who have organizational power. But in general, I don't know how to receive and give love if I'm not vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so I think that's, like Ben said, it's a spiritual discipline, but it's an artifact, I think, of how how love works. Oh, man, that is so good. I, I remember Brendan Manning would often say, you know, you can't say you love me if you don't know what hurts me. Oh, and uh, to to have that sense of this is where this is my level of brokenness or hurt or wounding uh, it creates the possibility of love. So that's great. Thank you for that. Jim, Matt. can I share, can I share a story with you? Yeah. Um, about this, I have. I was talking to a friend yesterday. His wife has terminal cancer, and um, and it's the kind of cancer that there's no way to handle it, no way to deal with it. It's simply um, you manage it, and mm. you know she's forty. Gosh. Um, and, um, he was saying like my wife, so uh, at the upper limits of what her life expectancy can be is like 20 years. So some people live 20 years, but the vast majority of people live, um, two to four years. Mm. And his wife is, um, is hoping and believing that she'll live 20 years. And my friend basically said to me, I don't have the faith she has. And what I want to do is take care of myself and have a kind of a sober-minded realist. I have two years left with my wife. Mm. And then he said, but to love her means to be vulnerable to the pain of losing her too soon. Mm. And he realized that in order to love my wife, I will suffer way more than if I just took care of myself and didn't share with her hope publicly, verbally, outside. And I think... What he was naming is, in order to love my wife and hope and believe and pray for 20 years with her, I will suffer so much more than if I al- than if I just got my inner affairs in order now and began to sort of say goodbye. Mm. And I think that's, that's an artifact of this, of vulnerability. In order to love his wife, he must be vulnerable to suffering. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's so profound. And I feel like I'm just quoting left and right, but you know, Dallas would often say, "If if you don't have a word for someone who's suffering, you don't know the gospel. Mm. Like if your gospel is just about, you know, heaven in the by and by or something that it doesn't impact this world that we live in, it isn't the gospel because the gospel is God is with us and God is here and God is love. And I'm just quoting your axioms now, right? <laughs> God is everywhere. He's in the mess. He's love. Yeah. I just gave away the book, guys. We're done with the podcast." <laughs> It's over. It's over. <laughs> Quick. But yeah, 
So yeah, I don't know that I've said the name of the book on the podcast yet, but it's called Having the Mind of Christ, Eight Axioms to Cultivate a Robust Faith. Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby are my guests today. So, well, let's talk about uh, axioms. Yeah. Great word. So, and the subtitle is Eight Axioms to Cultivate a Robust Faith. I talk about narratives. I talk about ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're in the same ballpark. Yeah. But you chose axioms, which is a great word. Why did you guys choose that one? Yeah. Well, something that's axiomatic means something that's just self-evidently true. And an early iteration of this book, I asked a friend to edit it, and he actually pushed back on the word axiom. He said, these things aren't self-evidently true for most of us. And, I, and he's right. And so these statements, these axioms seem to be the assumptions the, the, the common sense subconscious assumptions, default operating system of Jesus. Mm. These are the things that he didn't have to raise his hand and close his eyes and pray a prayer to believe. <laughs> these, yeah. things, these things were in his bones. He operated mm -hmm. from this reality. And so they were axiomatic for Jesus. And then, and then the invitation in this book then is, like a pair of glasses, what if you took this assumption Jesus made, and you accessed your reality through that assumption, what would it change? What does that give you access to? Mm -hmm. What's no longer important? Mm -hmm. What's more important? What can you see that you couldn't? Those kinds of things. So they're, they're, they're self-evidently true for Jesus, and then the, having the mind of Christ is to, to explore and experiment with them as assumptions in our own lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, that's the subtitle of, uh, of the good and beautiful God is, is coming to know the God that Jesus knows, the good that yes. Jesus reveals, because yes. uh, th that's the only way we can know. And of course, axiom three is God is just like Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, all eight axioms because yeah. they in, in themselves, I think um, are the gospel. <laughs> so here we go. Axiom one. God is love, so it's all about love. Axiom two, God is always present and at work. Axiom three, God is just like Jesus, which by the way is, I think I've done two podcast episodes on that axiom. Axiom four, God meets us in our messy reality. Axiom five, God cares about all of it more than we do. Axiom six, God does the same work through us and in us. Axiom seven, God's love always reckons with power. And axiom eight, God transforms us through embodied participation. They're just fantastic. Uh, coming to word I, as a writer, boy, words are hard to get in, in, in simple statements that are, there's depth and truth, but yet you, you've managed to say them in such a way that is very accessible. So I commend you on that because that's really hard. You know, when someone, so when you hear somebody and they're really hard to understand, we think, oh, they're really smart. And I always go, no, they're not. It, <laughs> they haven't done enough if, work if yet. If you can't understand, yeah. yeah, they haven't done the work yet. Yeah, so yeah. you guys have done a lot of work to get it down to, to something that is simple. But I think it was you, Matt, that said, you know, well, let's start with axiom one. And we, we don't have time to go through every axiom. And then they, no one will read the book. So, um, <laughs> but axiom one, God is love. So it's all about love. Let's talk about that a bit. You start with that one. Yeah, there's a lot to say, which is, you know, obviously we wrote a whole chapter about it. But I, I think one of the things that we're writing about and one of the things that's important about this chapter and, and starting with this as an axiomatic statement is that 
while the New Testament is filled with language about love and talking about how love fulfills the law and, you know, that love is, God is love and, and it's all kind of boils down to love. Despite that fact, I think a lot of us live our lives as Christians and as leaders in such a way that um, we assume that we need something more than love, that love doesn't mm. actually suffice. Love uh, doesn't quite get the job done. Love is nice, but you also need truth, for example, right? Um, mm -hmm. So there's a well-known statement that says you got to balance love and truth. But I think, you know, according to the New Testament, love is full of truth. So, so love doesn't need something outside of love to tell the truth. Love is sufficient. And so this this chapter is really about, and this axiom is really about uh, a couple things. One is recapturing the New Testament vision of love. What do we mean when we say love? Because the word has just been watered down um, and sentimentalized and sexualized. And like it's been... Um, it's been uh, redefined in our culture as something, um, yeah, sentimental or, or mm -hmm. cheap or flimsy. And so we have to recapture what the New Testament means by love. And when it says God is love, what, you know, what kind of an astounding statement that is. And we have to center that, I think, um, in the cross of Jesus, um, that, you know, this is how we know what love is, uh, as the New Testament says. And then um, letting that vision of God's love um, permeate our lives so that we realize that every, every aspect of our discipleship, every aspect of our life, every aspect of mission, every aspect of leadership is an outworking of love. It must be an outworking of love or it's not Christian enough uh, to really be kind of drenched in the gospel. Um, and so we, we, yeah, that's what this chapter is about. I think it's, it's orienting us to that as a, as an axiom and then letting you know, then, then that's where the work starts is, is to say, well, what does that mean then for my relationship with my uh, kids? What does that mean for the next person I need to hire? What does that mean for my, you know, relationship with my boss who's, you know, uh, a bit hard to get along with, et cetera. Um, and we learn how to work, work that out um, as, as we go. Um, but it really is all about love. It, it, we don't look outside of love for resources on how to live our lives, we, we need to plumb the depths of love in mm. order to discover um, how that needs to be worked out in our lives. Absolutely. I think, Jim, that was, what struck me about this is that two things. One, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is this great hymn to love, and we only, we only usually hear it during weddings. And love is, you know, good for a VBS theme, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah maybe chicken soup for the soul. We, we just have a thoroughly flimsy conception of what love is. Mm. And, and I, I, and Jesus was pretty sure that it was the most important thing about his disciples. In fact, he said, this will be your calling card. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think if you asked, let's just say other Christians, mm. what we're known by Christians right. wouldn't say love, let alone non-Christians. And so there's kind of this rehabilitation reclamation project here that we're, we're hoping our whole ministry at gravity leadership is about, mm -hmm. which is taking love seriously as the most powerful force in the universe. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. the audacious claims, the new Testament and the old Testament make about love. Um, what if we dared to believe they're true? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's central to, and you know, I, I teach in Christian spiritual formation. I have for a long time. And if someone pushes me, and says, "So what? What is it that you teach?" And I'll just say, 
who teach people how to love, how to love God, yes. how to love themselves, how to love one another. Yes. And it seems trite because I think what, what Ben was saying, the word love's been yeah. uh, captured by culture and, and it means a lot of different things. But, yes. you know, to love is to will the good of another person, is, right. is to, to desire and to act for the benefit of someone else. Yes. And you can do that for someone that you don't even like, which is amazing. That's true. And you, and that's why Jesus said to love your enemies. You're going, how can I possibly do that? Well, you can, if it's, if love is, is that. And then of course, then while we were yet enemies, God loved us, right? Romans mm-hmm. 5, 8, I think it is. So yeah, it's, it's so central. And I'm glad that you start with that. It's, I love that. One of the things that you do in the book that I think is so helpful uh, is you talk about our bodies a lot yeah, and, and you, you don't just, come at it as like, we're just these, uh, uh, I think Tish Harrison Warren said this at the apprentice gathering, which by the way, you guys are going to be at the next apprentice gathering. Yeah, yeah. We're looking forward the to that. Awesome. You're going to be teaching. So everyone sign up now. Uh, <laughs> it's people have been signing up like crazy, by the way. Oh, good. Uh, so we're very excited about that. But Tish in her talk, she, she said, we're not just brains on a stick We're yeah. we have bodies. And uh, I love how you talk about our nervous systems and Say a little bit about how, what you discovered about how we come to know what we know and our bodies. Yeah. And, and much like love, Jim, I just want to, if I can speak for Ben and myself, um, <laughs> that the, the body is, um, we, I feel like I'm just getting to know mm-hmm. how the body knows mm. and the intelligence and the area of experience of the body is. And so um, being an embodied creature and having a lot of a lot of what I choose to do, Jim, do, isn't decided by some sort of discursive, rational prefrontal cortex deliberation, <laughs> but it's instinctual, impulsive, unconscious. So Ben and I often talk about these beliefs that live in our bodies. We sometimes say live in our bones. That that we don't even know we believe these things. It's it's not something that we've chosen necessarily, but it's something we're fiercely, fiercely committed to. So in order to excavate that, in order to bring that to light, in order to um, get our hands on it and then decide, you know, do I want, do I want to live uh, as though um, I'm powerless? And so any, any irritation, anger, fear uh, come online for, in my body whenever I experience something as confirming that I'm powerless. Do I want to live like that? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> yeah. um, uh, the reason why this is so important is because if we, if we don't get acquainted with and tune into our bodies, most of what we really believe will forever be far away from us. Um, and so one of the beautiful things about how Jesus cares for people is that he, in, in a very, in, I mean, there's so many beautiful moments of embodiedness with Jesus and how he uses his body and how he touches people, et cetera. But, but he creates this space that holds people in like this courageous care where they can tune into what's really going on and share that with him. And uh, as, as much as possible, we, we want to learn from Jesus. And obviously there's so many other people outside of the Christian world who know a lot more about the body than we do. Uh, learn that the body is a, uh, a the spiritual arena for our our life with God. Absolutely central. Yeah, I mean, and and these these um, 
experiences, these beliefs, everything does implant in our bodies. I mean, I mean, I love, um, Bessel van der Kolk's work, you know, it's, that's a hard name. Jim Smith is easier. <laughs> Matt Tebby, even yeah. Sternke's easier than that one. Mm-hmm. But you know, his great book, I mean, the, the body keeps the score mm-hmm. is, is he's helping us to see, wow, we are enmeshed. Our bodies are connected to that. Um, yeah. in the good meal for you, uh, this book I just wrote that came out this summer. I mean, I moved chapter two on the, on the body because it's just so important. Our bodies, yeah. And we neglect them as Christians. We don't really think about them for some reason, or we think badly about them. But yeah. they're these amazing gifts and everything happens yeah. to us in our bodies. Yeah. So I really appreciate you guys for emphasizing the importance of that. It's, it's so, so crucial. Hmm. Um, so Axiom 3, I'm going to jump ahead to Axiom 3, is God is just like Jesus. And this one was huge for me. It's one that hmm. was a massive jump for me. I often tell people I used to have a, a Trinity deficit disorder um, <laughs> because I had, I had God as an angry judge. And then Jesus was, you know, my buddy who took my beating, yeah. but I did not have the Trinity in, yeah. in alliance. So well, right. coming to that realization that, that if you've seen me, you've seen the father, John fourteen nine, that God is just like Jesus was revolutionary for me. Mm-hmm. How did you guys come to that? And, and um, what is that? Has that impacted you in your own faith journey? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a number of different angles um, that this ended up coalescing for us as uh, something to be explicitly said and taught. Um, and one one aspect, I'll just mention one aspect. I, I just was having uh, coffee with a with an old friend. We haven't seen each other in twenty some years, um, and he was telling me that uh, a story that I've heard from a lot of people um, lately more than I used to when I grew up anyway, that um, the violence of the God of the Old Testament, if I can put it that way, was mm. deeply troubling. The depictions of, you know, God sort of commanding people to commit genocide. And yeah. a lot of these things that we're more sensitive and aware of now, people are just uh, noticing these things. I think when I grew up, it was like I I knew... It was like, I, I don't know, there was, there was less of a sensitivity to it, less of a awareness of how that was a problem. Um, and so I think that part of it is just people asking very real and important questions about what's going on here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like what is going on here when we see this contrast and we come by it honestly, right? If we come to that view that you articulated, Jim, that God is the angry judge and Jesus takes the beating. Um, we come to that honestly in the sense that this is one way that people have worked out um, this problem. Um, but I think, again, if you, you know, when you look at the New Testament, you, you realize that that's not an option for us to, to bifurcate uh, the Trinity in that way, um, to treat Jesus as if he is, uh, has a different mission than God does, to treat Jesus as if he's doing something different on the cross than what God is doing on the cross. Yeah. And so... Um, it's not that this axiom solves all of those issues, but I think it allows us to rest in the goodness of God. To just say that, I, well, whatever is happening, there's different interpretational strategies. You know, the early church wrestled with this as well. Um, the These depictions of God that don't seem to line up with what we see in Jesus. And I think this axiom, one of the things that it does uh, for me and for the people that, you know, 
that I've that I speak with and have talked to is that it allows us to rest in the goodness of God so that we can just um you know in some ways we can just say I maybe I don't know what's going on in this passage but what I do know is that God has spoken to us finally and fully in his son mm-hmm. and I can trust this picture of who God is because you know I follow Jesus and so um that's one thing that it does. I mean, it's there's a lot more to say about it, um, but that's one thing that I think this one way this axiom functions uh, for me. That's helpful. I appreciate that, Ben, because it is, you know, I've been teaching on the love of God since the '90s, and that is the most common pushback. Is yeah. like, well, what about the Old Testament? What about, yeah. what about the yeah. mighty smiter? Because he's he's mighty and he's smiting a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, how and do I make sense of that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's an important so, question. It's not it. it I think it's the right question. I think people are right to ask it. Um, you know, it's like, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a good, I was able to affirm my friend who, you know, my friend that I haven't seen in a long time, he, uh, he's not, he would no longer consider himself a Christian and mm. partly because of Christian leaders responding poorly to his questions about yeah. those things. Yeah. So what did you say, Ben? Come on. Mm. Uh, well, it was, it was, uh, uh, he wasn't asking me for what I thought about that. So oh, he was just okay. sharing with me. So I didn't say anything to him about it. Um, mm. I just affirmed his journey and I affirmed his, um, I affirmed his challenging and his question asking. Um, I yeah. just said, that's, you know, I have the same questions. Um, and I think you did well to, um, be honest about those things instead of just kind of swallow it and try to deal with it and try to be a good Christian. So anyway, yeah. that's what I told him. Yeah. You're, you're a good pastor, Ben. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> it is, well, it's very honoring and generous. And I think we need to do that with people and not just dismiss their, their yeah, questions and, and the things that are very troubling to yeah. just say, no, that is real. That yeah. is, totally. um, yeah, anyway. yeah, absolutely. Um, Jim, is it possible? Can I, can I add one more thing to the God Please. is just like Jesus? Yeah. I want to be really clear that throughout Christian history, mostly Western Christian history, uh, we we have a very unfortunate legacy of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this axiom can be used in a way that does two things. One, it, it takes Jesus out of his Jewish context— de jew of jewishist i don't know it it makes it makes jesus like his jewishness is like an inconsequential uh data point and mm. two we can then compare god revealed in jesus over and against um other pictures of mm-hmm. god mm-hmm. and i and i guess what i want to say is that um jewish friends that i know who handle the hebrew scriptures um they the hebrew scriptures are our, our, um, the, he- the Hebrew way of, of getting at truth is about wrestling and dialoguing and conflict. Mm-hmm. And so you have these pictures of God that are wrestling with each other, which uh, a, a Jewish way of doing theology doesn't want to flatten that out and put some concepts of God in a, a wrong bin and some concepts mm-hmm. of God in the right bin, which is kind of what mm-hmm. the Greek mindset wants to do, I think. And I'm speaking in generalities here. But rather, they see that the tension or the conflict is generative. There's something in the wrestling that births a truth that you wouldn't have if you flattened everything down. 
And you Mm -hmm. see this, I think even in Jesus's ministry, the way Jesus reveals God highlights some of those disagreements and tensions. So Mm -hmm. I guess I just want to caution all of us who identify as Christians, who are Gentile Christians, to become aware and resist uh, any any notion of um, supersessionism or an yeah. anti-Semitism. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's, a, that's a helpful, yeah, that is yeah. really good. Yeah, because we often think that Jesus was, uh, you know, an, a, a British guy. You know, he was, he was an Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> well, that's what all the show us. Yep. James. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, reminding us of that is really, is really crucial. Um, thank you for that. Well, I, I really love the chapter on God meets us in our messy reality. Mm-hmm. Particularly because, as I, the last several years working on this book, The Good Beautiful You, I was wrestling wrestling with this idea of like, okay, God loves us and we are amazing and beautiful, but we're broken and we're yeah. we're kind of depraved. Right. <laughs> we're really depraved at times. And there's this side, but I love this this quote uh, on page eighty one. Uh, God doesn't love me because I'm good. God loves me because God is good. Mm. Yeah. God loves the busted and blessed, the broken and the beautiful me. Oh man, that's so good. I mean, the idea that, yes, I am broken, sinful, and I'm beautiful and amazing and, and living within that tension. Uh, Talk a little bit about, about that. Cause I I love how you guys have navigated through that. It's not just all, we're all sugar and spice and everything's nice Yeah. or that we're all, what's the boy, the snails and puppy dog tails. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's not a good narrative, is it? I haven't it's really bad for a while. Yeah. Puppy it's, dog it's tails, anti- only the tail? That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's myth- misanthropist or whatever yeah, it is. I don't know. Against men. Okay. But <laughs> anyway, so yeah, how did you navigate through that so well? I love how you did it. Yeah. I, I think in this chapter, we talk about the unfortunate habit of spiritual bypassing, Jim, mm. where, you know, for instance, there's certain emotions or states of being in uh, the West and in, in U.S. culture that we treat as undesirable and even almost like a disease. So sadness is one of those. We, we don't like being sad. We try to avoid being sad. And mm. when we are sad, we look for ways out of it. Um, and I think what we've noted, what we noticed is a lot of people would come to a, a, a kingdom or gospel moment in their lives where there was an opportunity to respond to God in faith, but it would involve them facing and befriending something undesirable. Mm. Like the courage to be where we really are, the courage to weep at a tomb, you know, the courage mm. to um, write, uh, write in the dirt when uh, under threat of violence, the courage to um, temporarily stop an unjust exploitative religious system by turning over tables. Like this kind of being present to the bad stuff. I, I we just find, I mean, in ourselves, but in I, but also in the people we work with that it is so hard, so stinking hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then this axiom, God meets us in our messy reality, um, is maybe, maybe vision for us to not avoid those spaces or deny those spaces, or quickly move on, but simply to uh, face them. You know, Teresa of Avia talked about, uh, she used the metaphor of sitting in our weeds. Mm. And she was talking about the interiority of the heart. Yeah. But that's, that's this idea here, is that we, 
if we sit in our weeds, uh, Robert Downey Jr. calls it, if you hug your cactus, <laughs> then, then you actually uh, develop some, you actually encounter like this love that meets you as your capacity is exceeded. Yeah. And that's, mm. that's what this is about. Mm. Yeah. And uh, this is another example. So these, these axioms are not like individual sort of isolated buckets of information. They, they interlock with each other. They overlap with each other. And I think w- one of the reasons this axiom has been important for me is um, the God who meets me in my messy reality is the God who is love, is the God who looks just like Jesus, the God who is always present and at work. And so that's all really important um, to affirm as well, because I think one of the reasons that we don't want to be present to our mess, to our ugliness, to our you know depravity, as you put it earlier, Jim, one of the reasons is that we imagine, and this again operates on the paradigm level, even if we wouldn't cognitively or consciously say that we believe this, what we sense in our bodies is shame. And so that means that what we actually believe is that if God were to meet me in this mess, well, he'd be meeting me with condemnation. He would be meeting me with judgment. He'd be meeting me with a sigh and a roll of his eyes. And so, I, well, I can't afford that. <laughs> I already feel bad enough. Yeah. And so I don't want to meet God in the midst of this mess because I imagine what that might be like uh, is to just heap more shame on myself. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is an important axiom, I think, because uh, this is the proof in the pudding of what we really believe about God. If we're willing to take a risk that God might be love and that love might be enough to transform me. Um, I might not need to condemn myself or to be hard on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, love might be enough to transform me. Well, then mm-hmm. I can take the risk of meeting God in the midst of this messy reality rather than the assumption that I think um, I tend to make and a lot of people we work with make is that I'm going to fix myself up and then God can work in my life. Yeah. Um, that's a dominant narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just, I do want to point out that this was the first time Robert Downey Jr. Jr. has been. There we go. Yeah. Well, on this podcast. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. And, Spirit, uh, spiritual it was, teacher. It was, Hey, wisdom comes from so many places. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, I, I, um, I don't know if you guys know the the work of the ministry called The Cure. I don't know if you know. I've heard of that. I do. They, they've Don had Lynch. a profound impact on me, Jim. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And, and Bruce uh, and Robbie Angle, they were on this podcast okay. and I love their work, but that there's an image that they use that I think of. And I thought about that w- with this chapter where there's this sort of mountain that represent this big pile of garbage that, that represents our sin and like God's on one side and we're on the other side. And that's the thing that stands between us. But then they, they talk about, no, don't, don't look at it as the thing, but, but instead shift the image to Jesus is standing right by us mm-hmm. with his arm around us, yes. looking at that pile and going, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there is the God is with us yes. and saying, there's the, I'm not, as you, I think, uh, as you said, the, you know, bypassing this reality, this is here, mm-hmm. but it's not that thing that separates us. I'm with you in this and we're yes. going to work on this together. That image really helped me, but your chapter is fantastic on that because um, we, you're right. We, we tend to just brush that aside and not acknowledge this is the messy part. And again, we have to have a gospel that reaches into the messy. Um, so one of the things that you guys do that I also thought was great, um, you know, I've worked forever in spiritual disciplines, you know, with Richard Foster and, 
Uh, I talk about soul training exercises, mm-hmm. spiritual exercises, Ignatius language. But you guys use experiments of trust. So in each chapter, you offer people an opportunity to engage in an s- experiment of trust. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that language? I think we borrow that phrase from our friend Mark Skandrat. Oh, okay. yes. Love we Mark. went to an Enneagram retreat with him um, several years ago, and he, he either said experiments of trust or experiments of transformation. It may have been that mm. latter phrase. Yeah. And so that's the first time I thought about an experiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this and see what happens. Maybe this, maybe this could happen. Or mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. And and it, what it does for me, Jim, is it. I know it may not do this for everyone, but for me, it lets me open my hands a bit with these things. Mm. So that these aren't, these don't become the new mechanisms whereby I control reality and control God. Yeah. yeah. But they become offerings. I'm just offering my body as a living sacrifice, you know? Yeah. 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 I think that's, I, I don't remember, I, I, now that you say it, Matt, I'd remember Mark talking about that. Um, and I think he has a really keen um, insight into the practicalities of spiritual transformation. And so um, I am remembering that now he, but I think the um, similar to what Matt said, the, the talking about it as an experiment of trust, it like, it, there's no pressure. Um, Cause I think oftentimes people read these axioms or they hear about them or they, you know, that's like some sort of new thought about who God is. And the immediate knee jerk reaction is that I have to cram this new thought into my head harder mm-hmm so that I believe it. And there's this pressure we build on ourselves to believe this good thing that I know about God, but somehow can't seem to live out. Um, but calling it an experiment of trust is, I think, a way of just being a little bit more playful and gentle mm-hmm. with it. To just say, like, the, I, you know, maybe it's not true. Maybe God's not like this. But if he was, mm-hmm. what, like, here's a little experiment. You could just dip your toe uh, into, this, um, into this new way of being just with a simple step and just try it out. No pressure and, you know, money back guarantee, <laughs> so to speak. It's just like, it's fine. There's no risk. Um, just go for it. You know, there's, there's, and see what happens. Um, and I think we got, I mean, I got some of that idea from Willard. I mean, we keep talking about Willard, but, you know, of course we do. But um, mm-hmm. I think his, um, his way of talking about faith uh, really impacted, um, really impacted me a lot. And he, he would talk about it in that way to just say, well, it's just, it's just trust. It's just trusting that, you know, this stuff is true and just take a, take a step to try it out. You know, um, mm-hmm. this stuff is real. And if it is real, it's going to work in real life. It's going to actually, you're going to connect with the power and the presence of God. And so just try it out. Um, yeah. So that's the heart behind those. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Dallas does talk about um, about faith uh, and its root. You know, fide. It's 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 about trusting. Yes. And that's. I mean, you think about so many banks; they're always named fidelity or <laughs> interest true. or something. You know, it's because they they want you to. You can trust us with your money, but it is it is about trusting and learning how to. And I love it's so honoring and generous. Again, I use that phrase that mm. that allows people to say, "Well, let me try this. Let's just yeah. try it." And an experiment has that, uh, it denotes that, which I love. So guys, the book's out. Uh, That's always a weird thing as an author, right? The book's out in the world. Uh, Your your child is out doing things. Right. Uh, Who knows what? Who knows what and when? And and I love that they work when you're sleeping. That's what's great about books. 
Uh, I stole that from Dallas. He would say, the great thing about writing is books work when you're sleeping. And when you're taking a nap, they're out doing things. What do you guys (laughs) hope for the book? What are your, what are your hopes? I have uh, two hopes. One, we, we have a a year long training. We call the gravity leadership Academy. That's essentially uh, coming alongside people to help them live as though these axioms are true. Mm -hmm. And we have a process of discerning the kingdom, proclaiming good news, et cetera. So my first hope is that it, continues to fund that work in a more Mm. thorough way than Mm. uh, we had written before. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, Jim, I know so many people who, um, we talk to these people all the time, can't find a church, have been hurt by the church, think there's only one way to be a Christian, and that violates their conscience. Um, So many people have a complicated relationship with the local church or Christians, um, but they don't want to quit Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so we really wrote this book for people who know deep in their guts, they can't keep going through the motions yeah. and they really, they can't quit the hope that Jesus really is as good as they've been told. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this book yeah. is, I hope that this book gives them hope, like that, that it reintroduces them to something that's, that's uh, better. Uh, the thing that they hoped would be true, they can come to to know is true. So that, mm. that's, those are my two hopes. Yeah. Mm. I would agree with those. I hope, I, I, uh, I, I do hope that it's helpful uh, for people and that it continues to um, create interest in uh, our, our process of training and coaching. So, yeah. How, how do people connect with you guys? Yeah, you can um, go to gravityleadership.com. It's kind of where we okay. have all of our um, training and uh, coaching and, and that kind of thing. Um, as far as that aspect, uh, of what we do, you can email us, Ben at, uh, gravityleadership.com and Matt at gravityleadership.com. We're on, you know, social media stuff as well. Just look up our names. Okay. Um, so yeah. Wonderful. And just as a reminder, Matt and Ben will be teaching at the Apprentice Gathering 2023, which is September 21 to 23, 2023. And people can sign up now for that. People have been signing up, as I said, in a record number of people. That's pre-registered great. for next year's conference, which is great. Very excited and very excited. You guys are going to be a part of it. Um, your, your message is important. It's crucial. We need it. And, uh, you know, we all need to be working together and yeah. Um, well, thanks, that, Jim. that's, it's that's why I love what invited. you do, yeah. man. Yeah. I'm excited to meet you guys face to face. That will be fun. Yeah. Amen. Well, again, thanks for being on the podcast. Blessings to you guys. And, and you as well, thanks, Jim. Jim. Yeah. You as well. Peace. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a recent development here at Friends University where I teach. We have an undergraduate degree program in Christian spiritual formation, a Bachelor of Arts degree that's both a first and a second major. Now, I teach in this program as well as some other amazing professors, and I am pleased to announce that Friends University is offering an amazing scholarship of up to $18,000 per year to students interested in studying Christian formation as a part of their college experience. In addition to this amazing scholarship, there'll be hands-on learning with ministry leaders, working with me and others, and great opportunities for internships. Again, this is for both a first major, those who plan on going into ministry, as well as those seeking it as a second major, meaning those who are going to become accountants or therapists or graphic designers or teachers or engineers, any number of other vocations, but they also want to grow in their spiritual lives while in college and get a pretty big scholarship to help pay for college. So if you know someone who would benefit from a degree like this, check out our website, 
ApprenticeInstitute.org and click on the Friends University tab. Again, ApprenticeInstitute.org and click on the Friends University tab. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.